Hi, I'm Mo Abdelbaki, and this is episode 9 of my podcast. Welcome to Out of Mo's Mind. Hello, hello, and welcome to this next episode of my podcast entitled The Tale of the Tarot Snob. Well, <laughs> where to begin? <clears throat> where to begin? All right. Now, anyone who's known me for any length of time at all knows that I am... Um, Fond of the Aleister Crowley Thoth Tarot. Let me tell you how I met that Tarot. First of all, let me start kind of at the beginning of the whole thing. As a kid, I I was watching some show, and they had a Tarot deck, and they turned over the Death Guard, and it was like, dun, 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 you know, very dramatic. And I thought, oh, I think I was about five or maybe six or seven. Um, So I thought, oh, my goodness, I, I really want one of those. I... I think that would be fun. So I drew some pictures on my playing cards. I had a deck of playing cards. I got at Walgreens for a nickel or dime or something. And um, started doing readings for people on the playground, which got me into some trouble. Along with the palm reading I did on the playground, which got me into some trouble. I was in the second grade, makes me about eight, I suppose, when I was doing the palm reading. Um, the cards came a little earlier. And, uh, of course, they ended up getting taken away from me. I'd love to see what they look like today. Although it was like all skulls and stuff. You know, you're you're six, seven, you're seven. You're seven years old and you know that that's kinda of how you feel about things. <laughs> There's all these skulls. Ooh. So I I was really fascinated with the whole concept. And when I was about ten years old Yeah, about ten. I was reading a comic book and in the back of the comic book um was um get your own tarot cards. And I thought, oh, oh my. So I bought the comic book. <laughs> I didn't, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of money. And so um, so you re- sit and read the comic book right there in the newsstand, you know, a place called the, the Campus Shop, and they had all sorts of magazines and comic books and that sort of thing. I was kind of a, I look, my, all my friends loved the, um, you know, Monsters of Filmland, uh, Forrest Ackerman's wonderful magazine that we all grew up on, and of course Mad Magazine. But this comic book had this article in the back. Buy your own deck of tarot cards. So, I um, I think it was like three ninety five or three fifty or something like that. I think it came out to about five bucks total, which for me it might as well have been fifty million dollars because five bucks, you know, at that age was like oh gosh. So there was mowing of lawns and and begging and, you know, rolling around on on the floor and not quite, but my parents didn't care about that. Run, roll, roll. Oh, I say, I think he's doing a great job rolling, don't you? You know, by the way, you might want to get off the floor. There's glass on it or something. So um, I I sent away and got the deck. Um, We moved in the meantime. So it was a while before I got the deck. And uh, finally got them in the summer, I think about 1965. And um, I was uh, 11 years old, maybe, yeah, just, just turned. 
And I was so excited and had absolutely no idea what to do with them or what they were. They were black and white. They weren't the best quality at the time. But it kind of got me started. I was thinking, oh, I really like these things. I mean, I don't know what to do with them. And I didn't offer any readings, but I had them. And they were my little secret, you know. Oh, I have these magic cards. So I eventually, a few years later, a book came out a couple years later. Uh, it was on the stand called The Tarot of the Bohemians by Pompous. It's a, it was a reprint. It's been around for a while. And uh, I got all excited and 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 and. There was an actual deck of tarot cards available at the campus shop. Now, the campus shop was an off-campus bookstore that had a lot of textbooks, but it also had other things, and they had an occult section, as it was called, and it had books on tarot and so on. Not really many, um, because it wasn't that big. It had been really, 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 really big in the 20s and somewhat in the 30s, and then it kind of hadn't been really, 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 really big again. So this was a matter of, you know, it was kind of getting big again because of the whole hippie thing. And I thought, oh, so they had a deck there known as the IJJ Swiss deck, Swiss. And it was actually a deck used to play cards with. Well, that's true. Tarot started out as a card game. It didn't start out as divination. It started out as a card game, like bridge. It's a lot like bridge. And the major arcana, as we call it. And who's that? We well, it's, it's all of us, I guess. Um, the major arcana is, in fact, the trump cards. So you don't call a trump suit the way you do in bridge. Uh, you have a, you just have these trumps, and it's very competitive. Uh, one of the things that's kind of fascinating, this is the French version known as Tarot. Now, um, is that it is you against the other three players. There can be five sometimes, but it's you against the world. And if you're not the guy trying to win all the tricks or the, you know, the points, uh, then it's the world against uh, that person. So it's kind of an interesting way of looking at things. You, you know, you take it on. I'm going to take this on. I'm not going to be intimidated. So you do just that. But I didn't know that at the time. I thought they were just for, you know, just for the use of the, uh, of the divination. I would come to learn much differently which is always good. So I bought these cards and they were, it took a while to get the money for it. Once more, a lot of mowing of lawns, <sighs> doing dishes after dinner. My, I mean, I got like a dime, you know, for my allowance every week. And I, you had to do chores for that. Now, back then a dime could buy you, you know, a Schwinn bicycle, maybe. Uh, you could put a down payment on a car if it was the right car for a dime. But, you know, as a kid, you immediately that dime went to a spinning top or um, it went toward a Duncan Imperial yo-yo, which was 99 cents. But then it was the Imperial yo-yo. Yes, indeed. You get a cheaper yo-yo for less money. I'll, I'll, I'll do a podcast on yo-yos because, <clears throat> boy, that was a big part of my life. <laughs> so... I finally got up the money doing a lot of lawn mowing and my neighbor's lawn and all of that. And he had Russian olives. Oh my God. These were with the long spines and you get too close and I'd, I'd just be covered with scratches and, you know, but it was worth it to me because I, and he had hills and it's like, Oh, wowie, I really must want these, but I did. So I bought the deck and once again, had no idea. So I was into it. I read Papas's book, which is kind of uh, 
misleading on purpose about the structure of Tarot and of the occultist point of view. And Pappas was a great French. Uh, his name was Gerard Encos, and I'm probably pronouncing it improperly. Um, but he was a very famous occultist of his time in Ferent in France. In France. <laughs> in France. Um, <laughs> oh, wowie. And, um, yeah. And he started the Martinist organization there, and it became part of the Rosicrucian. It's, it's a long story, but it's a very interesting one. But I'm not going to tell it today. You know why? Because it's really not all that interesting. So, so ta-da, I got that deck, and da-da-da-da-da, and I read the book, and I was confused. And this was my steady state of being until by about I became 21 years old or so. I was on the campus of Louisiana State University, and uh, I kept seeing this guy, this guy. And he was a strange-looking fellow. He had long hair. I had long hair, but I tied it back because a guy looking like me with long hair just flying as it will uh, with my big old bushy beard and all of that might have gotten himself into a wee bit of trouble. Maybe not. Maybe not. But maybe yes. So uh, I, I saw him. He always wore uh, blue jeans, but like with a vest and a coat. And it was sometimes really hot. He and I both smoked a pipe, you know. And I would just catch him, and he would catch my eye, and I would catch his eye. And he had a, a, a rune on his pipe uh, that was uh, the rune Fehu, if you know what that looks like, part of the... The Futhark, as they call it. Rune, rune. And so I knew he was into something. Yeah. And eventually, some people orchestrated us meeting, and his name turned out to be Frodo. Yeah, I know. Now, now don't roll your eyes at me. You. You in the back, chewing the gum, rolling your eyes at me. That's not nice. I mean, did you bring enough gum for everyone? Go ahead and roll your eyes. I, I don't care. But did you bring some gum for me? Yeah? Okay. I did that once. Teacher always said, you can bring enough gum for the whole class, you can chew it in class. So I was chewing a piece of gum in class, and the teacher said, all right, did you bring enough for everyone? And I said, yes, I did. And so he said, you did? And I said, yes, I did. He said, well, then hand it out, she actually. Uh, so I stood up, and I, I uh, pulled it out of my mouth, and it was blackjack. You know, that stuff stayed black. And everyone went, ew, and I pulled out the other, you know, four sticks and no one wanted a single piece, except one kid. <laughs> yeah, one kid. And he said, oh, I'll take it, you know. And that was it. And she still made me put that gum on the tip of my nose <laughs> and stand uh, against the blackboard with the gum on my nose with my nose to the blackboard for about half an hour. That was, so I learned at a very early age, you know, you got to share the gum. So you in the back, um, I'll take it later. I don't need it right now. <clears throat> okay? That's fine. So anyway, God, where was I? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, Frodo. So uh, Frodo, he wasn't born with that name. Uh, but he had been kind of a troublesome child, and his parents had sent him off to the Outer Hebrides Islands and to live with an uncle who turned out to be a druid. And not the new druid order, but the, you know, <clears throat> these are really old-time druids. Um, and when he was ordained as a Druidic priest, he was allowed to take a name. And he took the name Frodo, which meant, he said to me, I, I don't know this for sure, meant scholar. And he was definitely a scholar. So one day, now Frodo did 
no drugs, drank no alcohol, ate no meat, uh, was about as skinny as a rail, and just shook all the time because of so much energy he had in him. And um, he was a nice guy. He had a very thick Scottish accent, uh, which I tend to believe was quite real. So so um, we were all together one night, and, and Frodo had not partaken of any um, extracurricular activities, but I and my friends had. And so he said, well, let's go back to my apartment and um, I'll read some tarot cards for you. And I, I, I rolled my eyes. I thought, oh my God, you know. So we went back and when he walked into this apartment, it was as neat as a pin. I mean, just absolutely spotless and everything. Was, and I thought, what sort of human is this, you know? Um, he was a cool guy though, really a cool guy. And so um, we sat there and, and he pulled out this deck and had a cross on the back. I thought, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding. And, you know, he just he laid out the cards, and I'll never forget the first card I saw was the Knight of Swords. And he looked up at me, and he said, oh, they like you. I won't do the accent. Um, they like you. And he said, I think you're the one. And I thought, what does that mean? And he never did tell me. But I immediately looked through the cards after he was done reading for me, and I, I was thinking, I have to have this deck. I have to have this deck. Because it was the first deck that ever made me say, I'm pretty sure I can do this. As a matter of fact, I, I'd be willing to bet some, uh, some dough on that. And there was a book. He showed me the book that came along with it. I went and started um, kowtowing to my parents. Yes, yes, I still lived at home with my parents. All right? Don't talk about millennials. Talk about me. I lived at home until I was 23 years, uh, 23 years old, and then I moved in with my wife. You know, and then my wife and I moved in with my parents. So, for a while, and then she left. Not not forever, kind of almost, but it's a long story. But but then I I went back to living with them until I could manage to go to where she was. And so I, you know, but I enjoyed it. It was easy. I didn't have to cook, you know, um, long story. But I get it. You don't have to complain about people. Just kind of walk in their shoes. And my shoes were painful, but that's a different story. So there I was. Um, going home, I've got to, I need some money. I don't have any money. And I, you know, and I'll pay you back because I, you know, I was going, I did end up getting a job, but, um, and they, they took pity upon me and the cards and the book would cost about 14 bucks. So I went to the metaphysical bookstore that was there and I think it was on airline highway, you know, and, and, uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, and I went in and I bought this card and book and I felt like the, the keys of the kingdom of knowledge had just opened up to me. And I started to read it and I read the book and thought, God, I don't understand any of this. Written by Alistair Crowley. He never makes anything easy. And when I started reading that book, I just realized I'm just going to have to take it piece by piece and learn what I can. And I studied that book and the cards for 40 years. 40 years. And, and you get to the point where you think to yourself, wow, this guy was really something. Now, don't believe what you hear about him as being a Satanist or being a, uh, a black magician or something like that. It's not true. The guy wanted to be liked. He was very famous at one time. 
much more famous than some people who think they're famous today. He was also infamous. He was also probably a triple agent for the Brits. He lived in Germany from 1928 to about 1932. Um, he wrote for a newspaper called The Fatherland that was an American um, pro, uh, well, I, I, it wasn't really Nazi yet, but pro-Germanic um, newspaper. And uh, and yet when he went back to England, he wasn't thrown in the Huskow. He was not, you know, nothing. And so many think that he actually was, uh, you know, and his cards show that he was on the side uh, of the Allies and not the Axis, but that's a different story. But I became convinced that his deck, and my using it, you know, for clients and so on over the years, that it was the best deck ever created, the best deck in the world. There was no better deck, you know. You just couldn't get a better tarot deck than that Alistair Crowley thought through with illustrations by Frida Harris. And so I, I would often poo-poo other things, other decks. I bought other decks because I kind of liked them, and one of my favorites was the Alice in Wonderland deck because I am an Alice in Wonderland fan, and I liked it, and, and it was quirky and kind of uh, fun. And there were a lot of other decks you know, that you kind of pick up, oh, there's a, the Ansata deck or this deck or that deck. And you just pick them up because you like the way they look. The Heindel Tarot I picked up and a couple of others, a Hermetic Tarot. And you pick these up because you're thinking, you're hoping that they will help break through that that place where you just can't figure it out. And then one day I stopped buying books on Tarot and I stopped buying decks because I kind of figured it out. I went, okay, this is great. And I attributed it to, not to the uh, the zillion hours of studying and hard work, because, but what the, what the Crowley thing does um, is, is it puts you on a path of study because he says things that are little taunts, little taunts. For example, he alludes in the, in the Fool, he's writing about the Fool, to the story of Punch and Judy and Pontius Pilate and Jesus. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, that's fascinating. So you go to the library and you find everything you can on Punch and Judy and you begin studying this stuff and you find this allusion to a guy who in the early 1900s decided that the story of Punch and Judy was nothing more than the, than the kind of the passion play, but the post-passion play. Uh, and was the interaction between Pontius Pilate and, and Judas. And it's not. I mean, everyone said this is rubbish, you know. It's, it's not right. But he tells you that because he wants you to make a connection to something in the card. And I'm not going to get into it now because that's an entirely different problem. But you look it up and you go, my God, this guy was a genius because he, he wanted me to look in this direction, even though it was a red herring. It was very tasty, you know? It was very good. So I immediately began to say, if you want to read tarot, you must, you simply must have to, you must have the Alice Crowley for tarot. If you do not, then you are not actually reading tarot. And, you know, and that included the Rider weight deck, the most valued and 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 used to Rodeck probably in the world. He really did popularize it. Arthur Edward Waite. Ryder was the company that that put it out. 
And his illustrator was a lady named Pamela Coleman Smith. They called her Pixie. If you ever see a picture of her, get on your computer gadget and put in Pamela Coleman Smith. And you'll look at her and you'll, oh, that's why they called her Pixie. She was a brilliant illustrator. Brilliant illustrator. Um, but the deck is definitely kind of almost art deco. It's, it's kind of end of the Victorian era. I think published around 1909, 1912, something like that. And, and Alistair Crowley didn't like Arthur Edward Waite. And so I read, he actually wrote a living obituary of the guy called Dead Waite, which is quite clever. But it's, it's a scathing hatchet job um, on Waite. And, and so you, you, you become, I became an absolute head up my rear snob. As my mom would have said, my nose was full of air. She, <laughs> she used to say that, you know, when someone was a snob, she'd say, you know, Momo, because she called me Momo, you know, Momo, his nose was full of air. And I think, what, what does she mean? Oh, okay. His air, his nose was in the air. And I'd say, Mom, his nose was in the air. She said, yes, that too. So, you know, she. I wish I'd kept a book filled with all the things she said. I would laugh. And sometimes she'd get mad, but most of the time she took it pretty good days. And then she'd say, you speak to me one word in Arabic. And I could, of course, speak a little more than one word. Mostly curse words because my father was um, prolific when it came to that. So here I am with this deck teaching the classes on the tarot and using that card. And someone said, could I use another definition? Well, you can, but not in my class. No, I'm afraid not. I mean, what, do you want to bring in a pile of, of potatoes and read that too? Ho, 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 Ah, God. It's not, I'm not happy about that. I'm not proud of being that guy. So let me tell you what happened. But I was that guy. I was asked to speak at a tarot convention about, I decided to tell you about the, the, the hidden magical stuff in the Crowley tarot. And there are all sorts of things in there, very clever little puns and gags that he pulls and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I worked on this lecture for months and I gave the lecture in front of probably what would be considered a handful of people. Now, next door, there was a Tarot presentation on how to color in your own cards, which was packed. And I thought, oh, okay, that right there tells me something, you know. And I had a good showing at mine, including, you know, a kind of a big deal celebrity. And he was there. And, um, and I started it on my presentation and I could just see the fog rolling in, you know, uh, uh, ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like, oh my God, um, glassy eyes. And I'm talking about the gematria, the numerology in the deck. And, and I went on and on and on because I had no choice. It was a audiovisual sort of thing. And after it was over, a few people came up and said, wow, that was really amazing. You need to write the book on that. And I was kind of numb because I realized that that people were kind of like, what? And I spoke to this very big name guy and he looked at me and kind of went, oh, that was very interesting. But I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just not, you know, and I thought, oh, God. So I went home and, and I, I really pondered all of this. And I thought, 
what's the deal here? And you know how you shake up a magic eight ball and you turn it over and that thing comes up to the top? You know, that the word comes up to the top and I shook it up and uh, mentally and turned it over and it came up and it said, so what? I thought, wow, so what? So what? And then I shook it up again and I thought, well, what about this stuff that I've been studying for 40 years? And I turned it over again and to the top came the words, nobody cares. I thought, wow, that's so true. Nobody cares. So what? Nobody cares. And I shook it again and I turned it over and up to the top came the words, and neither do you. Meaning me. And I realized I had solved the puzzle I was trying to solve. I mean, I bought a Rubik's Cube back in the 80s, and I that thing almost grew into my hand because I was going to solve it. And I worked on it for months. Now some people figured out, oh, yes, I figured it out this afternoon. You know, not me. It took me a while. But I realized, oh, my goodness, really, it doesn't matter. What I have been doing is solving puzzles. And I've solved it. So what? And I realized suddenly that I had been a snob. Not just a snob, but a, a, just, a, just an annoyingly tarot snob. That, you know, uh, yes, the only deck, you know. Oh, yes, bring in your tomatoes and potatoes and we'll read with those. <laughs> and not only does that turn off other people, but man, it made me sick. Because I thought, what have I done? Why have I done this? I had an, a, a rider weight deck on my desk for 20 years in the plastic wrapper. As a sort of a, oh, I don't read it. And I picked it up and I took the wrapper off. And it, I'm sure it said, what? What's going on, man? And I took the cards out and I looked at them and I thought, you know, they're not, they're not bad at all. And they're kind of friendly. And yeah, there's some scary stuff in them, but it, for the most part, it's all very positive. And I thought, I get it. This is why people love this deck. This is why they use it. And I still don't use it. Because one thing that happened was during my time of studying the Crowley deck, people say, oh, are you going to do your own deck? And I'd say, oh, pish posh, no. The best deck's been created. And I, I was looking at this deck and I thought, wait a minute. I want to create my own deck. And, and so my snobbishness, my snobriety, my snobitium kept me from being creative. It kept me from doing my own thing. And that is terrible. And I started to draw. It was obsessive. I drew approximately 10 to 12 hours every single day for over three months. Drew well over 100 drawings. Of those, I kept the 78 and then a back card. And I published my own tarot deck. If you're interested in what it looks like, you can go to moabdelbaki.com, right? So that's M-O and then A-B-D-E-L-B-A-K-I, spelled the usual way, dot com. And you can see uh, the cards. You, you go to the site where they print them, and you can actually look at every one of them before. If you decide you want to buy them, oh, good for you. And, you know, I, I would love that because 
I want to share them. And people, I wasn't going to share them with anyone. But I started drawing these things, and people said, what, what is that on your thing? And I'd say, well, it's a mole. No, I'm kidding. No, um, that's a... Um, it's my cards. And they said, well, we won't. Well, geez, you have to finish this. So, and I, and people have actually been using them. And I've heard some really nice things from people, which is quite gratifying. And, and I said, okay, I've done that. That's the end of it. I was kept from doing that. And then suddenly another deck came to mind. And I drew that. It's an oracle called the Man in the Moon Oracle. And then another deck came to mind. It's a... Um, it's called the transformation deck, and I, I drew that, and then another deck came to mind, and I ended up drawing that. Uh, now, not the 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 last two I mentioned are not available for sale because I'm thinking, what am I doing? You know, am I suddenly an industry of of drawing this stuff? And 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 then I said, okay, I'm done for a while. Let me rest. And then kaboom, more cards started coming to mind, and I've started my fifth deck. And I realized that none of that would have been possible if I had still been a tarot snob. Now I recognize there is value in every single deck. There is value in every single way of looking at the oracle. It all has merit. It's all good. It's all just fine because it's someone's vision of it. Mine is not the traditional vision. My deck is from my point of view. That's why I drew it. My cards. And boy, are they accurate for me. And some other people have said for them. But they're kind of modernized. They still have the basic leanings of that Crowley deck. I can't help it. I studied that for 40-some years. But on the other hand, they're more user-friendly. I'm not trying to confuse people. I'm not trying to keep anything secret. I'm trying to say, this is our life. This is our life. This is what we are. This is what we do. And that's reflected in the cards. You know, for example, my five of wands is five riot police walking toward the viewer. It's the strife card in Tarot. And that's because one Mardi Gras, that's what I saw. <laughs> I was standing at the edge of a parade route. And they wanted to clear the road for the parade to come down. And there were like 300 million people in back of me. And, and I was at the very edge. And I looked over and there were these riot police coming our way. And I thought, oh, my God, what, what am I going to do? The, from the moment I laid eyes on those five guys coming my way until when they actually got there was one of the tensest times in my life. So... You see, we do experience everything. And I think there's great value in my deck, but just, just as there's great value in all decks. Because when you look at a deck that someone has drawn, it is their world. And you get an opportunity to see the world through their eyes. And you may look at it and say, well, that's not my vision. But then again, maybe it is. Maybe you can say, oh, I hadn't thought about this. Sure. Sure, I hadn't thought about that, but it certainly does make some sense. It absolutely makes some sense to me. And so for those 40-some years that I was gathering this knowledge and studying and reading everything I get my hands on on symbolism and mythology and religion and this and that and, and every other that and this, I was maybe just priming the prompt, so, prompt, so, the prompt, so to speak, to allow myself to create, but I was keeping myself from creating by being a snob. Now, this brings me to my point. Snobbery is a form of prejudice. 
It's a form of bias. It's not a good thing. It's never a good thing. Being a snob means that you're looking down upon something or someone else. And I thought I was pretty far outly evolved. Or not evolved. That's silly to say. I'm a schlub. But I thought I had come a long way and and that I was like espousing the views of of my upbringing, which was like, this is pretty far out, man. No, no, we're all the same. We're all really good, man. It's a good thing to be like us, you know, and everyone is. But I I realize that in that one place, because I I don't view anyone as being inferior. I don't view anyone as being subvert, well, they're definitely subversives, but being subservient to me in any way, shape or form. As a matter of fact, that sort of thing just is abhorrent to me. My father had no prejudices. None, except for one thing, stupidity. He called me stupid a lot, because <laughs> I did stupid things. But he had no prejudices that I knew of, other than when people did stupid things. So so I'm, I'm kind of the same way when people do. And even then, I try to look upon them with compassion. But here I was, having, having my, you know, I was just being a, dummy, a brick-headed fool. But that's the key. When I woke up, I got it. I had kept myself from having an open mind. I had kept myself from allowing my creativity to come through and to flourish. I mean, I just started drawing again. I draw back, drawed. I drew back in the, you know, my early years and and in college and so on. And then I kind of quit. But suddenly I'm drawing like a fiend because when you take the lid off that particular pot, it just blows up. It's like creativity waiting, desperately waiting to be seen and felt and heard and understood and to be a vital part of life again. So I urge you to look inwards and say, what am I a snob about? Because most people have something that they say, oh, what I do is better. Look at politics today. Oh, my God. And I'm talking about both sides of the aisle, as they call it. And the alt-right and the alt-left and the, you know, but it had it, it did it, And you look at this stuff and you realize that there are all these people saying, my way is absolutely right. Your way is absolutely wrong. Now, there are things that are, to me, absolutely wrong. Barbarism is absolutely wrong. Preying upon um, people who are helpless or hopeless is absolutely wrong. Anyone, you know, who, who preys on, on the infirm or the weak or the, the gullible or the vulnerable, shame on them. Shame on them. But for the most part, the real watch God, watch God, watch dog, well, watch God too. Janice, right? Looked at, oh, nice save, Mo. Yes. Janice looking both forward and back, make sure that we are not taken by surprise. So that idea is that we have to be constantly vigilant and aware and look inside of ourselves and say, am I being a jerk? Am I being a snob? Am I doing things that are detrimental, not only to those around me, but most specifically to me? That's the key. That's the key. So those... Those are my confessions about being a Tarot snob um, and where it led, which is to great joy and happiness and a much better open mind. People were absolutely flabbergasted to see the change in me. I had someone actually had to sit down when I said, oh, yes, I, I recently looked at the 
Rider Waite deck and and did not, you know, um, have a have a conniption. You're like, oh me, I gotta gotta sit down. But why do we want to be like that? To make ourselves right? To make ourselves better? No, not for me. No more. Um, I'm open to all ideas. I'm open to everything, and I I just kind of like the experience of experiencing. And I'm doing it again, looking at decks with new eyes and saying, wow, I really like this. This is quirky. It's weird. When I submitted my deck to the uh, the U.S. game system, which is the, they published Tarot decks, they, they were very sweet, but they basically came back and said, nah, nah, we like conventional drawings. And I thought, well, that's, I get it, but I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that because you're missing out on a whole possibility here. And so I said, I'll just do it myself. And I did. All right. That's enough of that. Well, I hope you enjoyed the Tarot Snob's Tale. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I think in the next episode, I'm going to talk about my freak days. Um. Post-hippie, not-yet-sane times. I was quite the freak, but that's for next time. All right? All right. Thank you for listening. Until next we meet, I wish you all peace and love. Bye-bye.